This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with restorative justice practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. I'm super excited for today's episode because there are so many firsts. Today is our first episode with someone I met through an Amplify RJ workshop, first episode with someone actively working in schools, first episode posted on a Monday, and it's a super special episode because this Monday is Indigenous Peoples Day. Helen Wape Thomas is a Hunkpapa Lakota and citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. She is a Native American student achievement teacher for the Title VI Native American program at Tempe Elementary School District, and she's just an all-around great human. As you can imagine, there's so much to learn from our conversation, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Helen. Who are you? Um, Helen Guape Thomas Imachiapi Custo. My name is Helen Guape Thomas. Who are you? (laughs) Um... Malakota Kosto. I am a Hunkpapa Lakota and a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Who are you? I am the daughter of Jamie and Janet Thomas and the granddaughter of Helen and Basil Alkire and Jamie and Betty Thomas. Who are you? I am a sister and a cousin and an auntie and a granddaughter and a daughter. Who are you? I am an educator. Uh, I am a learner. (laughs) Who are you? I am a beater who makes jewelry and other fun things. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, who are you? I am someone that wants to empower and uplift indigenous communities, um, specifically indigenous youth. Thank you so much. Um, How are you? I am... I'm good. I think I... I am good. When I reflect on how I am relative to other times in my life, I feel really grateful to be at a point right now where I 
genuinely enjoy a lot of my days and I genuinely um, feel good at the end of the day rather than feeling like stressed and um, worried about stuff. So I would say overall I'm good right now. Yeah, overall good is great, especially in these times. I feel like a lot of the times my answer to that question is like, I'm fine considering the circumstances or as well as I can be um, considering, you know, what continues to be a global pandemic. Um, also, um, you know, still being in the middle of a racial reckoning across the world and, uh, you know, all the other things that people have going on in their lives. Um you are many things in the world. We got connected because you were a part of uh, Amplify RJ, Intro to RJ workshop this summer uh, because you're an educator uh, in what is now known as Phoenix. Uh, and Omi, uh, one of our facilitators with Amplify RJ was like, yo, you need to meet Helen. And I was like, okay, I guess uh, we're gonna connect with Helen. Um, and we had a really great conversation and you were sharing with me how, you know, the words restorative justice were rather new to you, but you've been living this way. You've known this way of being for a long time. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I guess, and I shared this quote with you before, and I think ever since my mom said it, it's definitely something I think just grounds me in like my relationship to restorative justice is um, this summer after doing Intro to RJ and uh, reflecting more on my own restorative justice journey when I started thinking about this work and living in this way I asked my mom to share with me about the sacred hoop or the sacred circle which is this concept in um, a lot of indigenous communities but I know I, I was asking my mom in the context of our own Lakota values and traditions and um she didn't really tell me at that point she's told me many times in my life but she just didn't want to go into detail that day i guess and really just said we just live in that circle way like and left it at that and i think um that just really shows how my whole life my mom um is hung papa lakota and was born and raised on the standing rock uh sioux reservation um in what is now north dakota and south dakota um, right along the border and I just my whole life she really taught me all these values and not even always explicitly but really just sharing how important it was to be in good relation with people um, and how important it was to treat all beings with respect not just human beings but our plant and animal relatives as well and I think um, while a lot of this stuff comes very natural to me because of the way my Lakota relatives um, passed on knowledge and traditions to me, um, I want to be super authentic in that like I wasn't always super connected to all of this or in tune to it um, because I, I was raised off the reservation. I went to school in a predominantly white community um, and definitely was socialized to not think this way and definitely was like had a lot of outside influences outside of my family and my community that were pushing um, really I mean white supremacy culture if 
we're just going to name it. Like that's what it was. And, um, so even though like a lot of the, I consider my, a lot of my roots and my foundational values to be what restorative justice is considered now. Um, it did take a lot of like intentional work and consideration to like really live into these as an adult, I would say is when that started to happen. Um, and the actual words restorative justice, I was introduced to that. I shared this the other day was um, in a Native American studies class that I took and I took a lot of Native American studies classes in college and we were learning about restorative justice as like indigenous justice systems, um, tribal governments, how they used it and um, how the Navajo Nation has peacemakers as a part of their judicial system and they have this whole non-Western system set up. And so that was when I really got exposed to it formally, but then kind of forgot about it and just went on my way being like, I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to go into education. And then once I started doing some of these practices in my classroom, um, came back into restorative justice and realized like, this is something I really care about and something I want to be doing and helping youth start to think in this way and um, go about themselves in the world this way. So it's been a interesting circle, if you will, of like coming back into things that I definitely was exposed to very early on as a child, but didn't fully consider what they were until I was older. Yeah, uh, there was a ton in there and thank you for, for sharing. I'm really, wanting to pick out a couple of things, and I hope that um, I'm remembering them. I think, one, this idea of, you know, living in this circle way. Um, you said that your mom didn't feel like, you know, expanding on that in that moment. What are some of the ways that uh, she had imparted that wisdom onto you uh, growing up? Part of it was always how we interact with others. And, um, what people talk about in restorative justice a lot is how a circle um, takes away that hierarchy of like not everyone's equal in a circle and there's um, nothing in between you when you're in circle with each other and um, I think she really imparted a lot of that on how I was supposed to interact with more specifically like my relatives like my actual like aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas because um, at least in my community, and I think this is how a lot of my other indigenous friends have shared this, that like, I have a lot of aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas who aren't in Western culture who you would call grandmas and grandpas. They would be like your great aunts or great uncles, but like in my community, those are just your other unchis and lalas, your grandmas and grandpas. So the way she had me interact with them and with others was just to treat everyone with respect and to honor that connection you have with them right away and to know that like even if this is someone that you don't necessarily know super well like you have a connection with them and you you're supposed to treat them in that way um and then I think the other part of that which I'm not necessarily sure if this goes along with restorative justice, like mainstream restorative justice, but was um, how a lot of our time is like a circle and to be really 
give ourselves a lot of grace and forgiveness when we make like a mistake or when something negative happens, how to like be able to work through that and that it, if it's meant to be like, it'll come again and like, it's okay. And how everything is very cyclical, which I think is not how we always necessarily think of time. So those are the two ways that I think she imparted on me most of living in a circle way. Yeah. She, you talked about how it was mostly with people who shared that value system with you. Um, your, your aunties, your, uh, your grandmas, your grandpas, your uncles, uh, people who had that background, who had those like, you know, shared community agreements about this is how we want to be together. But you weren't primarily um, living with people who f- uh, who operated in those kinds of ways, right? You grew up off the reservation in primarily white schools. Uh, how was that living with that tension? So a phrase that you'll hear a lot of indigenous people talk about um, and use is this idea of like walking in two worlds. And I really always felt as a biracial person, um, my mom is Lakota and my dad is Scots-Irish from the East Coast. And so um, I always like really felt that binary, I guess, like even within myself and within the spaces I operated in, it was it was difficult to reconcile these two different worldviews and also not having the language to even like process it through because... Um, a lot of, most of my relatives lived on the reservation, lived within the community. So when I was around them, it's not like I could talk to them about how, I mean, I could, but it's not like we did talk about how different it was outside of the community in where I was going to school. Um, and then when I was around predominantly non-native people, I didn't feel comfortable enough to talk about my community. Um, so it was definitely felt very separated and um looking back on it now there's a lot of socialization in that predominantly non-native community to not live in that way and like so many external forces telling you to be individualistic telling you to be competitive telling you that like your individual well-being is what you should always put first and not really thinking about that collective well-being and those relationships that I got from um, my community. And you didn't ask me about this, but I will just put it out there that there was a very specific community, different community that I became a part of that helped me start to live into those indigenous um, and like circle values again in my life. Yeah, please shout them out. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I, was raised in North Dakota, went to, lived in the same house my whole life, went to school. And then when I went off to college, I um, moved to New Hampshire and went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, which is a very elitist school that um, I never thought I would go to. And I never thought I would be in a space like that. And the only reason I was be- was because of an indigenous mentor that reached out to me and supported me um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go into education was because I felt like if more Native youth had, Indigenous youth had that mentor, it might make a difference. It really did for me. Um, but very few people know that Dartmouth was founded to educate Indigenous people and that's how they got their charter and that's how they got their funding was saying they were going to educate the 
uncivilized savages in the new world and um, then they just didn't do that they like had like 11 natives graduate in like the 200 years that they existed and um, so in the 1970s when there was a huge revival of um, indigenous rights and there was like the American Indian movement um, and that was on of course like due to all the work that our black brothers and sisters were doing in the 1960s and 70s, um, they started to recruit more native students. And so that's actually why I ended up there is because they have a really strong indigenous community. Um, and so I became a part of that indigenous community there. And it was the first time in my life where I was around other indigenous people. Um, there was so much diversity within that community that was really powerful, um, so much I think even reflecting on it now, I'm like, wow, that was a community that really lived into restorative values because um, the community was all about learning from each other and there was no hierarchy or like, or being too native or not native enough. Like you were just very much accepted for your indigenous, indigenous identity that you had. And um, that's when I started to learn more formally about like a lot of indigenous knowledge and practices. And so that really helped me come back into, like I said, a lot of these values that I felt rooted in, mm -hmm. but had not been like, tended at all. Like they just like, there was those seeds there, but no one had been tending to them. So they weren't, they didn't grow until I really got into that space and started to be able to live in that way. Yeah. And this is at, the beginning and like going into the same time you were taking classes about Native American studies, learning um, mm -hmm. all these other things. So getting more connected with people who were living this way, not just like learning about it academically, um, really helped you live into that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's the thing is you can, you can read about it and you can like, listen to other people talk about it but once you really start to see other people like living into it and practicing that in their everyday life like it, it can be really powerful at least for me and that's how it, traditional indigenous knowledge systems a lot of it is learning by doing it's not just reading about it talking about it is like now i'm gonna I'm going to get better at this by just doing it. And it might not be great the first time or the first few times, but I'm just going to try it. So that was really powerful for me. It was finding a community that yeah. lived into it. I think like you brought up, you know, characteristics of white supremacy culture, like this need to be like perfect from the jump, right? That's not realistic for anybody, <laughs> right? When you're learning anything um, with most things that are worth learning in the world, um, you need to be terrible at them uh, for a while um, and keep learning, keep trying, um, and then you get a little bit better and a little bit better or live a little bit more in line with those values. It's not about like a set, it's not so much like a set of practices to adopt. It's just a way of being. It's habits that you build. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, restorative justice education, not like restorative justice in education, but teaching people about restorative justice, it is, you, there are like some technical things to know. There are some values to learn like didactically, but the real learning comes when folks, you know, try living them out. Um, 
often very, very helpful in community. That's part of what we try to do with Amplify RJ with some of the, uh, the, the the structure of our workshops is that you know you come in and you meet with these people you learn this material you go back into your context try practice you come back learn a little bit more reflect on what how how things went um and learn a little bit more and then you know you go out practice again uh we're not going to be perfect at this and like even at the end of like you know going through you know either a month or two months or three months of workshops like once a week you're still not you're a practitioner of this right but we're never gonna like master this right it's 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 constant practice living into this way especially um when we live in a society uh broadly that tells us um not to do so many of these things Uh, i know you went from dartmouth uh to arizona uh because you uh for, for a handful of reasons and you can share some of those uh but you were you've, you've become a teacher um what prompted you to go from you know this native studies more policy driven uh to education yeah i definitely um when i was at dartmouth i studied um like i majored in or whatever um economics and policy and and then education, like I kind of like created my own little major. I was like, I'm just going to pick and choose. And, um, and it, at the end, it started to become more education because I started to think that there's so much potential for impact in education. Like as a teacher, you make so many connections with so many other people people so many students but also like your other teachers the families of your students the community that you're in um and that's really what I wanted to be doing and I still kind of had the mindset like oh I still want to do policy or something like mandated or something which now I'm very not on that on that train of making change through that way um but I wanted to get that experience of being a teacher first and so I came to Arizona and I was on an emergency intern certificate from the state to be able to teach and get certified at the same time. So I did that and um, yeah, I just love teaching. Like I love being around youth. Um, just And I mean, my favorite part of it is the relationships, like the relationships that you form with those students and with the community is so meaningful um and what's a little scary i think about that too is like you there's a lot of potential to do harm there um because of the relationship so i that's kind of how i got into education was thinking about how can i impact communities that i care about which are indigenous communities um in a way that's going to actually create some hopefully start to create some change i think like if I imagine if I would have had an indigenous teacher, um, cause I didn't have one until college, what that would have done for me and the relationships I had with my indigenous teachers, professors in college was so meaningful. Like it was just, um, and I don't think that's necessarily because we were of the same race or because we had that, but, but because we had the same values um, and this worldview that we're kind of talking about this restorative mindset um, is what allowed us to, connect and really learn together rather than 
being in this relationship where they're like teaching you, teaching to you, but teaching with you and learning with you. Yeah. How did you impart those values into your own classroom? Um, I think definitely. I love that you and Amplify RJ in general focus so much on how restorative justice is not just a reactive thing and not just isn't shouldn't it's not just all responding to harm but really emphasizing that proactive piece of like living in good relation with people because like from this conversation you could tell that's really where I feel like I relate to restorative justice the most is that how can I be in good relation with all the beings in my life and so with teaching that's always was my first approach was like how do I create a relationship with you um how do I form that relationship so that we can start going into the learning and, and then so that when some harm does happen I can we can respond to that in a way that doesn't create further harm but actually restores that and I definitely wasn't doing that my first year I was creating the relationships but I the second part of RJ the res, responding to harm like I didn't feel super confident in that <laughs> my first year I'd like because you get as a teacher and as someone that didn't go to school to be a teacher but who was like kind of learning how to do it as I did it uh, I quickly realized like whoa there's a lot of people telling you like you need to manage you need to control you need to like all these things that felt so unnatural to me like that's what I was like that's not how I'm trying to be in relation with these students <laughs> like I'm not trying to manage them like their objects or control them like their objects um but I wasn't getting told anything else so when harm did happen like that was I can be to be very honest that I definitely probably perpetuated some harm as a teacher um by responding in a punitive way um right away but then I've only, and I've only been a teacher for two years, so I just like to yeah. be upfront about that, that I am not like someone that's bringing many years of experience um, to the teaching field. So, but in my second year, I definitely started to do more circle, um, circle processes and like, uh, didn't even realize I was doing them at first. Like it was something that I would be like, okay, this thing happened because I, I moved from teaching first grade to third grade and there's a lot more conflict in third grade between students because they're just like they don't even know they don't know how to be friends with each other yet like there's like, there's kids that like are just interacting with each other every day and you can tell as an adult I'm like oh those are your friends like those are your close friends in the class but those are the ones they're they're arguing with and they're hurting each other's feelings and a lot of the social emotional things they just didn't know how to work through that yet and so when those started to happen in my second year I was sitting down with students and we were um, setting agreements before our conversations talking about like okay we're gonna respect each other um, we're gonna let each other speak and we're only gonna say things that we know are true um, and then talking it through and allowing people to speak their side of the story and then working together to be like how can we make this right and how can, and this is with eight-year-olds and they can they can definitely internalize that and start to do I overheard them doing it by themselves saying okay please wait like I will let you speak your truth in a second and like being like how can we make this right and um so that was really amazing to see um so yeah I think 
it started with relationships, but then it did start to move into like, how can we repair harm together? Yeah. Um, I want to highlight that it is so easy for children to do this because they don't have all the years of socialization of being oppositional against each other, punitive. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we can be building those habits with students early on, like we're building, like you're right. Uh, education, you can have so much impact because you are building, um, you know, building people to what they will be in the future. I want to uh, shout out Naomi O'Brien, who is at read like a rock star on Instagram. I've been using this quote a lot um, to, to really highlight the importance of education. And that's this before they were killer cops who created hashtags. They learned how to treat black people from you and you. She's speaking to primarily educators. And of course, there are other societal factors that um, influence how you know, people grow up to socialize around race um, and, you know, just the fundamental nature of, you know, how humans can be together, being collectivist versus individualist, uh, comp uh, collaborative versus competitive. But uh, teachers do have so much power in that. Um, I'm curious, uh, a question that I get a lot is like, how do you build relationships? Uh, right now, the questions I'm getting is, how do you build relationships with students on Zoom? And I think that's tricky. Um, how were you building those relationships with your young students, first or third grade? For me, for me, it really, I guess, the way I always grounded myself and like, how do I, am I, how am I going to build a relationship with these students is like, well, first I have to consider them as like human beings. They're not just my students. They're not just. Um, and, and I think in education today, especially, they're not just my little test score producers, which is like a huge uh, pressure, um, but really just I'm like, who are you as a human being? Who are you as a whole person? And like, not just, so so I would just ask questions. Like I would just ask them. Um, I would I would do my best to make sure I was like equitably trying to get to know everyone too, like making sure I wasn't just focusing on certain kids because there are kids that, um, will come into your classroom seeking that connection, seeking that relationship already. And those are the ones that it's like, all right, let's go, let's do this. Let's build this relationship. And they will talk to you every day about what's going on with them. Unprompted, especially first graders, like just will tell you everything that's going on. But um, especially the students that um, might have, and I saw this more in third grade because they had our, it's crazy. You can totally see that that socialization that um, happens just in those few years of school from like first to third grade. There are some kids that are already um, don't have a positive relationship with school. I even had first graders who had said things to me like school's not for me and like I'm not, school's not my thing. And I think intentionally just checking in with them, um, a lot, really similar to the way we do in Amplify RJ community spaces, just asking like, how are you? What's going on with you? Um, and making sure it was very authentic um, because students can tell when you're not being authentic. Kids can tell when you're, you might have like an ulterior motive. Um, so to genuinely just be like, how are you doing? And like, what's going on with you? Um, what did you do this weekend? Like, what do you like to do when you go home? And just like taking the time to get to know them which can be really hard because the white supremacy um, culture of urgency is a huge one you see in schools where it feels like 
the test scores, the teaching, the standards is also urgent and it's also important um, that relationships get put on the back burner. So being consciously like, no, I'm going to set aside time today for us to build relationships. And then also doing that among the students. Like I would really try to intentionally set a time, set aside time and space to build community within the classroom, not just between me and individual students, but like between the whole class. How can we start to see each other as our community of learners that we're, we're here to learn from each other. We're here to learn with each other. Um, and I, I love to do that through games. That's my favorite way to do that is um, playing games like icebreaker games, um, variations of like step into the circle games. Like uh, I just, that's my favorite way to build community with students. Just to summarize that one, like see them as humans, right? Show up authentically in those relationships. Don't fake that you want to build relationships if you don't want to build relationships, right? Um, create the time um, and don't make it just about relationships between you and students. Uh, build that um, within your classroom. Um, sometimes playing games, sometimes doing other things. Group work, um, you know, why do why growing up did like we all dread group work right like how can we like build that capacity for people to be excited about that okay so this is just a plug for a random book i have been listening to that is like a young adult book called alatsoe um and it's a uh, written by a native american woman and um it's just super awesome but they had this scene where there's these two kids talking about like why is group work always so horrible? And like, yeah, you ever notice that like there's one person that does all the work and, or there's there's one person um, and then there's always a few people that don't do anything and they were just like kind of deconstructing group work and how it often plays out. And they were like, yeah, they always say, teachers always say like they assign us group work because it's gonna get us ready for the real world. Like as if we're not already in the real world. And um, then they kind of go on to say like, well, maybe this is how the real world is, is that there are people that will take take on the work and others that won't do anything. And I think it was interesting commentary on how if you don't set up equitable practices in your room to understand that relationship of community, to understand that like, hey, this group work is, you need like, the intention of the group work is that you're working together and that you're all striving towards the same goal, that collectivist mindset. If you're not kind of setting that up through your practices every day as the educator modeling that and showing students that on a larger scale, um, it probably won't play out like that when you have them do the group work. Like they'll probably return to some of those values that they've been socialized to do, which is um, to think individualistically and um, yeah, so I think group work doesn't play out well if you don't set those foundations. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll definitely link that book in the description. Um, send that to me so we can do that. Um, and like, yeah, it's so important that like that foundation is modeled uh, for students. Um, you're not in the classroom anymore. Um, you and I had this conversation about... Um, you know, your dreams of opening a school one day, but uh, you're not quite there yet. What are you doing now? Yeah, so I actually left the classroom this year um, and 
I do miss it. I'll put that out there. I do miss being in the classroom. I do miss being in community with students. Um, but now I'm in a different sort of community. I am the Native American student achievement teacher, which you're probably like, what is that? Never heard of that. I had never heard of it either until I applied for the job um, for a Title VI Native American program. Um, and Title VI funding goes towards supporting um, Native American students in education uh, and that exists because of treaty rights and um, the fact that indigenous people um, exist not just as a racial group in America but we're also a political one with inherent sovereignty and when the government made treaties with us they affirmed that and also um, promised to provide education for students in exchange for the land that they stole. Um, so what I do is I support students um, throughout the district and right now I'm doing it through small group instruction on Zoom. So I just meet with students in groups of one to four or five and um, support them with their academics. But the main thing is that I'm, I am striving, the goal is to support them in a culturally responsive way. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. And how does that tie into like the long term? Like, I want to start my own school. What does that look like, you know, in the hopefully sooner rather than later future? The reason I took this job now is one, I wanted to be um, more directly supporting indigenous communities. Um, I loved the school I was working at before. It was in South Phoenix, um, but it served a predominantly Latinx community, um, specifically mostly um, first or second generation Mexican-American families. Um, and I loved that school, I loved that community, but I wanted to move into a position where I was supporting um, indigenous students and the communities I support now are mostly um, Navajo or Diné people who live off the reservation um, in this urban environment or uh, students from the Pascuayaki tribe, which is a tribe that's actually, um, the reservation is in Tucson, but their ancestral homelands are in Mexico, um, and they migrated up to Arizona in the early 1900s. So I wanted to be working within an indigenous community, and the point of that was to learn, is I'm trying to learn as much as I can from community members of like, what do you want education to be for your child? And what, um, what and I always ask the families of my students this at the beginning of the year through surveys, um, but like, not just like, what do you want, but like, what are your hopes and dreams for your child's education? What are your hopes and dreams for your child? So that way I can do my best to support them um, and give them the experience, learning experiences that they need to get to that point, even if it's in third, fourth, fifth grade, which are the students I'm working with now. Um, and also I have the opportunity to create um, curriculum now for students, mostly in after school programming, but it's been a really great opportunity of how to um, figure out how can I make learning as relevant as possible for these students culturally, um, but also just based on like, what are they interested in? What do they care about? What are the problems in their life that they, they want to fix? So um, yeah, that's why I'm in this position now is to gain more experience with the communities that I really care about and how I can meet their needs through education. Um, 
You mentioned how all of this programming is set up as part of treaty rights, right? And another word that you mentioned, and there's indigenous sovereignty. Um, for those of you who are listening, uh, we're recording this on October 9. Uh, two days ago, October 7, you facilitated a workshop on uh, healing uh, indigenous healing indigenous historical trauma for the amplify rj community and one of the things that like you very very lightly touched on is this idea of indigenous sovereignty and i know you're going to be providing our community and others more learning around this in the future but could you give us like just like a tiny piece of like what is it you what is it what is it that you mean by that um and how can people support um that becoming reality I'm so happy to give you a small snippet. I love having this conversation, um, especially with educators, because I think, um, as I'm going to explain what it is, but if you can start explaining this to students, it could really start to shift um, the our society's understanding of what Indigenous people, who Indigenous people are. Um, but Indigenous sovereignty is um, Indigenous people's rights to there's many ways you could define it, but the way I, I like to use a quote from um, Wilma Mankiller, who was the first principal chief of the Cherokee or Choctaw Nation. I can't remember. Um, I will have to confirm. But she says that sovereignty is our right to determine our own future. Um, and to break that down, um, it's indigenous nations' um, right to govern their own peoples, um, their own, oversee their own lands, um, and through that determine their own futures. And indigenous sovereignty is not something anybody gave to indigenous people. Um, it was always inherently theirs by virtue of being on these lands since time immemorial. Um, it's something that doesn't get discussed because um, to acknowledge indigenous sovereignty um, is to acknowledge that the lands that we all live on, if you're um, listening in the United States of America, is stolen land. And to acknowledge that this land was illegally taken um, and that it rightfully belongs to indigenous peoples. So there's definitely many reasons why indigenous sovereignty doesn't get the space um, that it deserves. But that's, that's what it is, is indigenous people's rights to, I love to just say, determine their own futures and, um, yeah. yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, so, um, it looks a lot of different ways. Um, unfortunately, not all indigenous peoples have the same autonomy over their sovereignty, uh, so, Within um, the United States, federally recognized tribes are able to best exercise their sovereignty um, because they are recognized under the government's, like they qualify for the government's definition of being uh, nations. But there are many indigenous communities in the United States that are, are only state recognized. Um, there are many that are not recognized by the federal government or the state. Um, like indigenous Hawaiians, um, native Hawaiian people uh, don't have their sovereignty recognized. They are still actively fighting to have their sovereignty recognized every day. Um, but for, for the tribes that 
are federally recognized, which my tribe is federally recognized, so that's who I can speak to best, because um, that's within my experience. It looks like um, determining citizenship laws and deciding who gets to be a citizen of our nation. Um, it looks like, similar to many local governments, like creating um, education programs, creating health programs, um, and and now being able to oversee them ourselves and being able to run those ourselves and take care of our own people. Um, because for a long time, it was very much the federal government doing it for us and saying, one, placing us in this situation of needing the federal government and then saying, look, you're incapable of taking care of yourselves, even though indigenous peoples have really complex systems of governing themselves long before uh, settlers arrived here. They had some very complex and um, honestly amazing knowledge systems and governing systems. So I hope that explains what it is. Yeah, uh, and there, I'm not expecting you to give like a full, full like rundown of everything. Um, for people who want to learn more, what are some resources that you would like to point them to? Yeah, there is some great, um, I guess what's coming to mind right now are like different accounts, social media accounts that you can follow. Um, at mm -hmm. Seeding Sovereignty is a great one. Um, uh, Survival International is an account that talks a lot about um, a more international perspective on sovereignty, which is great, and indigenous peoples all over the world. Um, and what are some other accounts that would talk about sovereignty? I'll have to I'll have to think about that a little bit more, and I can give you a list, and we can link them as well, because uh, I do for want sure. people to know. But I mean, even for me as an indigenous person, as some as someone who my mom um, has worked in tribal government my entire life, uh, it took me a long time to, and I'm still learning. Like, what does indigenous sovereignty mean, and what does that look like, and how does that manifest? Um, it's it's very complex and because we don't learn about it, it takes time to really fully understand like what is it and what does that look like and how can we help make sure that it is being affirmed and recognized. Yeah, uh, like speaking to like that continuous learning lifelong process of, uh, you know, learning in general, growth mindset, all that, um, but you know, just developing um, as a person. We're, we're constantly um, learning lessons. A lot of the times we learn lessons by the ways that uh, we mess up and then learn from them. I'm curious um, if there's a specific time, uh, and you can relate this to living in a circle way or doing restorative justice work, um, that you had like an oat moment and like, what did you learn from that? Mm. I think Let's see. I've made many mistakes in my life and I mm -hmm. am someone that I'm learning to not dwell on them and to to move forward from them. But I think and I think it's hard to ask you this question because like a lot of times I'm asking like with people on this podcast within the context of doing like restorative justice work, right? But if we're talking about restorative justice work, quote unquote, being living in this circle way, right? Um that is all of your life. <laughs> um, so um, whether it is like, quote unquote, restorative justice specific or something else. Uh, I do have something I think I could share. So at my old job, 
that's very related to restorative justice. Uh, at my old job, I before I left um, to take on this new position, which kind of happened a little bit last minute, so I was still um, preparing to come back this school year to where I was going to be. Um, my supervisor, my principal, asked me to lead a professional development session on restorative justice. And um, it was going to be a mandatory session for the entire... Uh, I, I worked at a charter school, not a district school, so it was for the entire charter, like kindergarten through 12th grade teachers. Um, and he wanted us all to be... and it was virtual. Uh, and I was excited. I was like, yes, I'm going to get to talk to people about restorative justice. And like, um, I read the, um, oh my goodness, what is the name of the little book about teaching? Uh, restorative justice, uh, the little book of restorative justice teaching tools. Yes. Um, yes. And we'll link that in the description. Mm -hmm. And I read that um, to prepare. And then I was like, oh, mm -hmm. ooh, what he's asking me is like really not restorative. Like, this is not how you go about talking about and teaching in a restorative uh, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I pushed through because I was like, uh, he asked me to do this, so I have to do it. And not that it necessarily went poorly. I think people were receptive to learning about this new mindset um, and framework. But it was definitely a learning moment to be like, and you've, you've shared this before, and I, it really hit home for me once I experienced it myself, but you can't force people to learn the story of justice. And it cannot be a mandated top down, like we're doing this and like, we're all gonna be restorative now. Cause it's, it, that's not restorative. So right. yeah, like it was just, uh, that was definitely an aha moment that I was like, oh, as much as I want other people to know about this and as much as I want other people to be, to start thinking in this way and practicing uh, teaching and living in this way, like. It just, it can't happen this way, like through this. Yeah, you don't teach it in a professional development. Um, I think like you can expose people to the technical ideas and like what the applications could be, but um, you know, this is life work. Um, so yeah, there are specific things you learn. Um, when I think about the ways that I learned about this work, it was in small groups of people like building a relationship with each other and trying to navigate all of that um it's also about you know having conversations with people who are more experienced in the work um we the first episode of this podcast was uh with one of my greatest mentors in this work so far uh cheryl graves and people like um, Ashley Ellis, who is the previous episode of this podcast, um, who has been um, a friend, I, I call her a friend to right? Like very close friend, but I also learned so much from her about, you know, how we navigate doing this work um, and going out and practicing, learning more things um, and messing up and, you know, doing that way of learning, not necessarily like, okay, we went to this training, we learned this thing, check that, check that, check that, check that. Uh, I'm a restorative justice practitioner now. I would say, yes, you are, because now you go get to practice those things, but you are in no position to say like, oh yeah, I know this, I've mastered this, I can you know, go out and, and do this perfectly. There's no perfect, it's relationship. Um, and so when we're thinking about teaching restorative justice principles 
or circle principles to people. It's not something, one, you said, not something that can be forced. Two, has to be done within the context of relationship um, and is by no means a, a quick check this box process. Exactly. And I think that's definitely a challenge of trying to um, get restorative justice into the field of education because uh, the white supremacy a- culture. Yeah, and there's been a lot of um, that where different people have tried to reform education and they do it in that way of like, we're mandating this, everybody has to do this, and then it really doesn't play out well. And I think if you try to take restorative justice down that same path, like, it's not going to play out well and it's not going to go the way you want it to and you won't have, you'll you'll push people away from the practice when you want to be bringing people in and I think... But what's hard is that because there's, as a teacher, you have so much going on that like you do want those things. You're like, I can just, I can check this off and I'm done with this now, right? Like I, I just have to move on to the next thing. And so I think it's about shifting that mindset to being like, this is, I'm not just teaching in a restorative way. Like you said, this is life work. I'm living in a restorative way. And by virtue of that, it also affects my teaching. Yeah, it's, it is like, if you are living in this circle way, you will be in the circle way with your students. You will be in the circle way with your colleagues. You will be in the circle way with your admin, God forbid, uh, <laughs> your students' parents, because um, it's just about how how we're relating with people. Um, what is one way that you are really trying to grow in this work? And I guess you can define this work however you want. <laughs> um, I think the way you just said it, I, I am trying to... I do try and live into this circle way. Um, But for me, my own personal um, area that I'm trying to work in is, yeah, how do I live into this circle way with like the families of my students, the the larger community that I'm working within um, in a way that where we're in community together and we're all striving to work together for our students, for the youth, for the community, um, because I have yet to find uh, any like resources or explicit things to talk about that, how you live into community with, as, a, as an educator or just as a person with, with the whole, a community that's not like the community I was brought up in. And like, I am a newcomer to this community. I am someone that um, is joining this community, but it already exists, like it's already there. Um, how do I join that community in a restorative way? And um, just me personally, that's my personal growth yeah. that I'm trying to get to. I'm curious how this plays out in your personal life. Um, and that's also a struggle, I think. Um, as much as I say that I was brought up in these values, which I was, um, as with a lot of indigenous communities, um, my family and my relatives, we have a lot of intergenerational trauma to work through, I think. And um, so living into this in my personal life is sometimes harder, I think, than living into it in my professional life, I guess. Um, So that's always, like I said a lot earlier on in the conversation, 
it's something that I have to actively think about doing. It's something that I, I it's, it's work. it is the work to like bring this into my personal life, especially when I feel like, oh, I'm working so hard all day to, to be in this restorative way with my students, with my colleagues, with my admin, that sometimes it's very difficult to continue living into this way at home. Like once I come home and yeah. I'm just like, I'm trying to relax or take a breath. So, um, I'm learning, uh, I am very grateful to have uh, family members and relatives that also um, do their best to live in a circle way. Um, so it's very affirming and it feels feels natural to be in that way with them, but there are things that make it difficult sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely relate to, you know, I do this professionally, right? And like now having to come home and be this way um, with somebody who is uh, like having things in the toaster while I'm recording a podcast. Did you hear that ding? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, like being communicative about that in like good ways, um, you know, like talk, speaking from my own perspective, um, reflecting back, not um, assigning blame and and shame, offering offering grace and really like holding myself accountable for the things that like I'm I'm in control of definitely definitely a challenge um yeah I have a hand like I've got like a list of questions that are intended to be like short responses but I may ask follow-ups I've always asked to follow up in all of these responses so we're just going to go where they go um Restorative justice is about living in good relations with all living beings. You get to sit in circle with four other people. Who are they and what do you talk about? Mm. I think I would really love to sit in circle with some of my ancestors. Um, I was very close to my grandfather um, and he passed away when I was young, around 10. Um, so I would love to be able to sit in circle with him now as an adult, um, just to talk about um, more of what does it mean to them to live in that circle way. Um, I would love to talk to him. I would love to talk to um, some of my maternal grandparents, my my grandmother's parents, um, and uh, my uh, grandmother's grandfather um, was uh, a Hunkpapa Lakota chief. His name was Chief Rain in the Face. Um, and so he was a leader among our people and I would really love to talk to him about, um, I don't know if I would use the word restorative justice, but to, um, again, like ask him, what does it mean to live in good relation with people? Um, and I mean, if this is a ideal situation, I would love to have this conversation in Lakota. Um, I actually, I, I, don't, I didn't fully introduce myself earlier in Lakota, but um, I don't, I'm not fluent in Lakota. I did not get to learn it in school or my mom doesn't know it um, because my 
grandmother and grandpa didn't pass that along out of fear of um, them of negative outcomes for of knowing that language but I would love to have that conversation because I think in a lot of indigenous languages we have words for being in good relationship with each other and with all living beings that English doesn't necessarily have yeah so I would really love to have um, a conversation with I guess my grandmother's parents my grandpa and my great great grandpa as an aside i think the conversation around like do we keep using the word restorative justice when it's so colonized um is a worthwhile conversation to have because when we say the word restorative justice people automatically think like just repairing harm and we're talking about so much more than that um that's a conversation for another time but i appreciate uh, you bringing that out that like, you know, English is so limiting in a lot of ways. Um, what is one thing that you want everybody listening to this podcast to know? I want everyone to know, and I'm going to do this in spirit of Indigenous Peoples Day coming up, that Indigenous Which is today people... for people who are listening to this on the day it's released. <laughs> <laughs> Indigenous people um, exist. We are here. We are... And we're not just here struggling, like we are thriving, we're resilient. Um, and that indigenous people have so much knowledge that um, would benefit everyone, not just other indigenous people and not just BIPOC people, but and not just settlers, like everyone. Um, and so I encourage everyone to learn more about the indigenous people's land that you live on that you occupy um, and what you can do to learn from that community. Yeah, we'll include some links to how you can do that um, in the description, especially uh, that land acknowledgement piece. Uh, don't wanna go into all of that today, but that can be a great step into um, you know, learning more, um, not just whose land you are on, but uh, the history of why um, it is no longer recognized globally or um, colloquially as that um who is one person that should have on this podcast oh um i know you were at this talk yesterday mm -hmm. um but i uh, dave and i were both at a author circle for dr edward valandra and i loved hearing him speak um part of that was just because he is also lakota and he sounds like all of my uncles. And so whenever I hear an older Lakota man speak, I'm just like, oh, uncle. Uh, but I, I thought he had some really great points on restorative justice um, and how we start to bring in uh, BIPOC perspectives on restorative justice yes. into the conversation. So um, I would encourage you to have him on here on this restorative life. Uh, yes. In full transparency, um, I misread the time zones on that. So I only got in there for the Q&A, um, but definitely want to reach out to him. Um, for those of you who don't know about the book Colorizing Restorative Justice, uh, he was the editor who brought in um, so many uh, Black and Indigenous, um, mostly women of color. Um, There's a handful of... Um, men who contribute as well uh but it's a really important book about uh the way that we need to um center non-white voices <laughs> in this work uh which is also what we're doing with this podcast um 
And finally, maybe not finally, but um, how and where can people support you and your work? Yeah, so you can find me. I'm I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me at at Helen Thomas twenty eight. Um, I I'm clear what all the work will look like in the future. I, I really appreciate David um, and everyone at Amplify RJ for supporting me in starting to um, put more content out there in this work. Um, but I try and share a lot of resources. Um, mostly specific to like indigenous um, education and knowledge systems uh, but you can find me on there you also bead and, and yeah yeah oh yes true i also i i, I bead i create jewelry um i also do that on that page I, the page is quite eclectic <laughs> like here's some restorative justice here's some education here's some beadwork but i mean it's just me that's like my page that's that's everything i do so um, yeah, feel free to support me. I do, in terms of my beadwork, I just, I just randomly drop like beadwork being like, here's the things I have for sale. Um, but there should be some of that coming out soon as well. So yeah, you can follow me on there and that, I would appreciate it. I would, I would love it. Yeah. Um, and so we'll definitely link all of that. It's definitely the resources that we talked about here in the description, but it's been so good uh, talking with you. We've talked a lot this week, but I'm still not tired of it. There's so much um, like that I continue to learn from you. Um, and I'm excited about the things that uh, we'll be collaborating on in the future. So you can stay tuned to Amplify RJ to look out for some more collaborations uh, with Helen. Um, I'm going to put it out there to say a workshop specifically on indigenous sovereignty sometime within the next month, um, October, November, um, just want to manifest the things. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, we look forward. To, I look forward to having more conversations with you offline. Everybody else follow Helen on Instagram. Um, is there an email address you want to leave for people who don't have Instagram? Yeah, if you want to email me, you can email me. It's similar at hethomas28 uh, at gmail.com. And then for signing off, I just want to say uh, Pilamayaye, David, for having me on. Thank you. Um, I, I also have really enjoyed our conversations. I feel like I learned so much from you um, and I appreciate your support. So thank you helen and to everyone else take care be well and we'll talk to you soon like what you heard please subscribe rate review and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now it really helps us further amplify this work follow us on our social platforms at amplify rj and check out all of amplify rj's events and workshops at amplifyrj.eventbrite.com Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.